0: You might like to keep your Bible open at um, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, Today's sort of one of bringing us to the end of the year and the end of the 1 Peter book. That was well-timed, wasn't it? I don't know how we did that. But anyhow, uh, there's been an awful lot in 1 Peter so far. I hope you've, uh, as you've worked through it, uh, God's Word has taught you well. Um, I hope it's encouraged you. Um, I also hope that as you are encouraged from God's Word, it's also rebuking you, um, What are some of the ways that God's Word has encouraged you or rebuked you? That's a rhetorical question. You don't need to to put your hand up and give me an answer yet, but it's good for you to think about that. Um, By the way, if as we read through the Bible, it only ever confirms what you thought already, my gut feeling is there's the danger that you are just reading the Bible through the lens of your comfortability. You might have... um, just this ability just to pick up the bits that only ever tick your boxes and interpret everything that way so I think sometimes we read the Bible it should teach us rebuke us correct us and train us in fact I think that's what God said he gave it to us for Uh, our time together as we look at God's word now I hope that's not just about giving you a weekly feel-good time it's not our thought bubble time I hope that God's word is actually as we talked about in our um, kids spot is it actually going into our heads and changing the way we live that's probably the bit I find hardest um, I can be challenged by God's word in my head and then how do I put it into the practice and habits and keep it there as my life how can I how do I be biblically obedient um, I might pray for us as God's people that God will strengthen us to do that as we look at his word this morning I'm going pray Lord God as we open uh, the book of 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 we pray Lord God that this is not our thought bubble for the week we pray Lord God that you will help us to concentrate on the stuff that matters Uh, we pray Lord God that you'll put aside the stuff that doesn't matter in our thinking uh, when we're tired or busy and have minds that wander Uh, we pray Lord God that your word will shape not just our heads but be flowing on and shaping the way that we live And we ask that, Lord, so that your name will be glorified and honoured. Lord, we pray that you will keep shaping us by your word and through your spirit. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Well, as I said right at the beginning of the service, this passage begins by talking about the sort of minister you should have got, or actually the sort of pastor a pastor should be. It is addressed to church leaders, Uh, But before you just switch off and think, oh, well, I can switch off for the next four verses, can I suggest to you that it is addressed to pastors because it's a problem that pastors can have specifically, but it's still addressed to you. Uh, If the pastor is told not to be greedy, guess what? So are you. Uh, If younger men are told to submit to their elders, guess what? So are you. So anyhow, as we read it through, it's highlighting particular sins of pastors, and that should be fairly obvious as we go through them. But can I suggest, don't switch off, because it's speaking to you and to me together. Pastors, in chapter 1, verse 2, sorry, chapter 5, verse 2, let's have not gone all the way back to the beginning, uh, should be willing pastors, willing shepherds of God's people, not under compulsion. Uh, And I must admit, when I read that, I thought... What sort of idiot pastor would be one under compulsion? Um, You know, this is written to people in first century churches. And so pastors probably didn't get good life insurance. Um, It would have cost a lot. Uh, You didn't necessarily last long, depending on the area you were in and the town you're in. And particularly as we look at 1 Peter, Peter is written to Christian suffering. And so pastors of God's people, you'd really want to make sure you really wanted to do it because you're the one who's going to be targeted. Uh, In China today, uh, the pastors are targeted. Oh, actually all around the world, let's not just pick on China. Uh, In in places where Christians are under great persecution, the best person to bump off is the pastor. But then I thought about it more. Uh, That's a shame culture, isn't it? And in a shame culture, what happens well, Mum and Dad passed to the church, so I probably should, shouldn't I? You know that generational pressure, or maybe that heart for the gospel, and it's and you think, well, I just should be the one who do, does it. i got no. Everyone else stepped back, and I was the mug left standing forward, and so that could have happened. It must have happened because they warned about the danger of it. In our culture. It's very easy to have people wanting to pastor churches. It's the best blood job you've ever come across. None of you have any idea what I do each week. Well, roughly. You couldn't couldn't account for more than 20 hours of my week each week. I could be off doing anything. I can assure you I'm not, but I could be. You see, in our culture today... You can put your hand up to be a pastor and you're accountable to no one and no one knows what you do. As long as I download a sermon from someone else each Sunday, none of you would have the faintest. I don't do that, by the way. And then, it wasn't all that long ago in British culture that the first son was the heir, the second son was the military general and the third son was the minister, as if he wanted to be it. So cultural Christianity that we live under... Of course, you know. Do you want to know why the Anglican Church is so hopeless? Because they had first son was the heir, the second son was the general, and the third son went into ministry. They didn't know the gospel. They didn't care about the gospel. But it was a it was a means by which you could just have a job and do whatever you wanted. I know I'm being overly cynical, but you get the idea. You see, Paul is right. So Peter is writing to the church where it's suffering persecution and telling them the danger of having pastors who feel like they are obligated to be pastor and don't really want to be and we have the same problem in our culture today. As we think about pastors and the sort of pastor that we should be or have, um, it's also worthwhile thinking about what it says here. Uh, The difference between a leader of a church and a leader of God's people. Now, In 1 Peter, they didn't have denominational churches like we have now. But a denominational leader, and I'm not just talking about the bloke at the top, I'm talking about the leaders in the parishes. A denominationally focused leader will, of course, lead the sheep the way that the denomination wants them to go. But this passage says very clearly that the shepherd should be leading the sheep the way that God wants them to go. You see, if I just want to be a church leader, I'm going to pursue comfort. I'm going to pursue um, not up, don't, don't rock the boat. Stability, making sure everyone's happy, affirm and a teach you anything that you want to hear, because that will reduce my stress during the week. But a shepherd who's a shepherd of God's people will be teaching the sheep what God wants them to hear. And that doesn't always give us a comfortable week, does it? A shepherd who's teaching the people what God wants them to hear, will be wanting to defend the sheep from false teachers and other threats that come along. Uh, They will be prepared to rescue sheep when they're lost or stuck in thorns themselves, even if they're enjoying being lost. That's the sort of shepherd that should shepherd God's people. And the passage reminds us that the, the shepherd is not building his own personal empire, these are God's sheep. The shepherd is not pursuing his own hobby horses, this is God's word. And the shepherd is not, desi- not governed by the desires of the sheep, the shepherd is governed by the desires of the sheep's owners. A shepherd needs to be vigilant. They needed to be vigilant if you're looking after literal sheep because there were literal wolves that came and attacked them or literal thieves that actually came and stole them. But shepherds over God's people are not worried about literal wolves. They're worried about wolves in sheep's clothing. People who would love to take them off on their own hobby horses and agendas. People who would love to undermine the truth about the gospel with what people's, other people's itching ears want to hear. And we read of lots of that in the Bible, where churches had the gospel, lost the gospel because they listened to false teachers. And Peter is warning the church to make sure those who teach them, make sure those who pastor them, are pastoring them, them under God. You know, if, if today is just sort of a bit of a therapy session for your week there's a possibility you've misunderstood the gospel. If you're hoping just to feel good every time you read the Bible or come to church and have a bit of your own thinking pumped up and uh, and, and, uh, and promoted, then it's possible you've misunderstood the gospel. A shepherd of God's people also needs to be prepared to serve God's people. That's a bit of a no-brainer, I would have thought, But the problem is leadership in our culture is not about service, it's about being served. I would imagine that almost every corporate structure has the bloke at the top or the woman at the top being served by the people who are further down the pecking order. There are not too many CEOs of large businesses that are ordering the coffee or cleaning the dunnies because they don't get paid to do that. Can you imagine paying Alan Joyce, whatever you pay Alan Joyce, just to clean the carpets in the Qantas head office? People want more out of their leaders, they pay them more to get more, but that's not the model for leaders of God's people. In verse 2, up on the uh, the NIV, the, tw- the 2010 NIV, uh, NIV, it talked about that leaders should not pursue dishonest gain. And in the 1984 NIV in front of you, it talked about the fact that leaders should not be after, uh, greedy for money. Uh, base gain is the whole idea. They, 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 in other words, it's sort of saying, you're not a leader of God's people for the money you get out of it. Now, I again wondered how that could have ever been a problem in the early church. Because you couldn't write books, you couldn't sell stuff, and there was no TV evangelists in the early church. Isn't that amazing? None of the apostles seemed to make much money out of being an apostle, did they? But what happened in the early church? God's people gave massively and generously. We read about it in Acts, don't we? And it could be that that economic wealth that comes through the church that is meant to be used for God's service could be siphoned off by a dishonest leader couldn't they and it's not just the cash that comes through there's lots of other wealth generating things the churches can get, in, get involved in and they have haven't they the wealthiest organization in the world is the Christian church how bizarre is that and the leaders of the Christian church have got a history of being opulently wealthy, embarrassingly so. I could name our TV evangelists who think that God is blessing us as they, as he makes the leader fabulously rich, opulently rich. It's amazing how you can twist scripture. And this verse is warning us against it. But let let me say, this verse is also not saying to you that you need to keep your pastor in the poverty line. It would be very unwise for you to pay me a million bucks a year. I ain't worth it. And I will just end up worshipping the money that you give me. But it is also very unwise for you to pay me 20 bucks a year. A pastor should not pastor for the money they get out of it. If I get 20 bucks a year, I'll just have to go and earn my money somewhere else. I'll become a tent-making pastor. That means self-funded. I might be a tent-living pastor as well. But I'm pre- You see, if the church that you're pastoring can't afford to pay your pastor because you're all in jail, that's a different problem to not being able to pay your pastor because you're all living self-indulgent lives. When it comes to elders, when it comes to those who pastor God's people, they should not be in it for the money. And we have terrible examples of filthy rich pastors today. A pastor of God's people should lead by example. You see, a leader who just orders a sheep to do whatever he wants is not the sort of leader that should pastor God's people They need to be examples to the flock. Examples of grace-filled living. Examples of godly service. They won't be perfect. We heard about that in the kid's spot, didn't we? No one is righteous, not even one, including your pastor. But a pastor should not be living in an ivory tower. Uh, In the Anglican Church, we refer to my lord the bishop. What an embarrassing title. It's as silly as when people call me father, except my own kids. It's wrong at so many levels. It's an embarrassment to the church that we have thought that our leaders were lords. And then that, that happened when society loved the leadership of the church, but it, sh- it, it, it shouldn't have happened then. And it shouldn't happen whether society doesn't like the leadership of the church and the problem is not just bishops who think themselves lords, it's ministers who think the pastors are there, so that the sheep are there to do their bidding. What job is beneath your pastor? No job, really. The, the pastor can't do everything. He doesn't have the skill set to do that. And he certainly doesn't have the time. But a pastor should be involved in the ministry, getting his hands dirty with the sheep. And verse 4 says that a pastor needs to know two other things. The great shepherd will come back. Now, if you know your boss is about to turn up, you're going to make sure you do the job well. And you need to know that your, pastor, your, your owner, the great shepherd, is coming back one day. Now we sometimes think, oh well he hasn't come back in the next last 2,000 years, he won't come back in the next 2,000 years, I can do what I want but guess what? God knows everything we do and one day we stand before his throne. But this also reminds pastors that as they pastor God's sheep and possibly miss out on a few things here and there that they have a reward in heaven. They will be they will have a crown of glory that awaits them in eternity now that doesn't mean that the only people with crowns on in heaven are pastors okay it's all of us have a crown of glory but it's reminding pastors that you pastor not for what you get out of it here but where you are going Now, you might be a bit worried now because we've been at a long time and just done four verses and there were 14 there. The next bit looks at younger men. Um, I could probably put myself as a younger man because it doesn't actually say what their age range is. I did assure people in the 830 service that there were none who qualified to be younger men. But guess what? Just because it targets younger men here doesn't mean that everyone else can switch off either. This is a problem that younger men have. It's not saying that younger women... Or older men and women can do it, but younger men can't. It's the same as the problem that pastors can have that we've just looked at in the first four verses. And what is the problem of younger men? They have lots of energy, and they know all the answers to all the problems in life, and they could well think that they should be the ones that direct the church in the way that they should go. And they're told, younger men, submit to your elders that's a bit rude isn't it it doesn't mean they can't talk to their elders it doesn't mean that they can't share their ideas but god's people don't want to be split in a hundred different ways in a hundred different directions they want to be focused on what god's doing in them and through them younger men then it goes on to all of us. Verse 5, that's halfway through. So if you've go, go, fallen into the tendency of switching off because you're not a, a, a pastor or a younger man, then verse 5, wake up. Now, see, the problems that we have are the problems that you have. And what's required of all of us is to be people who act humbly towards one another. And pastors need to do that with those that they shepherd it's specifically pointed out how you might do that. Younger men, it's pointed out how you might act humbly with those towards one another, and all of us need to do it. And the reason why you and I can put aside our desire to lift ourselves up and gain ourselves security is because we have a God who cares for us. God wants us to do that. He wants us to be humble. God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. God is not about wanting us to be rulers of our own worlds. He wants us to be people who love and care for one another in the context of being God's people gathered together. Sometimes people take that idea that if, I sh- if I'm humble today, God will lift me up tomorrow. And so I'll be humble and I'll be a winner tomorrow, don't you worry about that. Or, or maybe next week, if I can get my moment in the spotlight, God will give it to me later on. But at the moment, I'm just downtrodden for this month. It's not actually what God, this passage is saying. This passage is saying, God never likes the proud. God always likes the humble. He's not going to give me, turn me into something he never liked, whether that's next week or next month. Verse 7 does say, in due time, God will lift us up. What's the due time it's talking about? It's when we spend eternity with God in heaven. Remember where the book started. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. God will lift us up to be with him in heaven for all eternity. And if that doesn't get you excited, nothing ever will. And knowing that means, what it says next, you and I can cast our anxieties on God. It it, it stresses you out when you actually humble yourself and miss out on something the world has to offer. No, it shouldn't, because actually God, who's sovereign, who has won us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, he says, trust me. Cast your anxieties on him. In the face of persecution, in the face of trials of many kinds that are sent to refine us, in the context of living in a, as a tough situation as being a Christian, it could be a tough marriage, it could be a tough workplace, it could be a tough society. That's some of the things that 1 Peter's already covered. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But don't just switch off. The God who cares for you doesn't say, well, just sit back and relax and everything will work out in the long run. He says, Be alert. In fact, the words which were in the in the 20, uh, sorry um, the eighty four version of the NIV is uh, be sober and alert. Now, if you want to see what it means to be drunk, go down to the pub about ten o'clock and listen to pub logic. Uh, listen to the pub solutions to the world. Uh, when I was in the country, uh, one of the farmers came to church and was quite happy to tell me. Uh, that they came to church because when they came to church they got the best farming information in the whole district the other option for them was wasn't much good the other option was to go to the pub and they said after two beers the farming information wasn't trustworthy so that's why they came to church people come to church for any reason don't they I hope I know they got converted but I never saw it Uh, a church is not about giving out good information though I've heard absolutely rubbish information said at church. I probably said it myself. But we're told to remain sober and alert so that we can see false teaching and deceitful lures of the devil before we fall for them. Makes a horrible mess when we fall for them, doesn't it? The Satan is desperate to lure you away with some newfangled idea. Satan doesn't want you to trust in Jesus. Satan doesn't want you to share the gospel. Satan wants you to be nice. He wants you to be a good citizen. Resist him and stand firm in the faith. Even if it means suffering for the sake of the gospel, the context of 1 Peter. And when you suffer, just remember this. God's people all over the world, and I can add across the ages, have suffered for the sake of the gospel. Now, you and I might find that hard to believe in a culture that's been Christianized. But even in our Christianized culture, anyone who's actually wanted to share their faith with their family or in their workplace has suffered for the gospel. Uh, there's so much in there. Before we finish, though, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. But for verse 10 and 11, uh, I want to remind you of something. One day you're going to be dead. That's our Christmas message for the year. And so live for Jesus today. Live for Jesus today. Live for Jesus today in a world that doesn't know him. Live for Jesus today in a world that doesn't like him and in a world that will persecute you or might well persecute you when you speak about him. And if you suffer everything, if you lose everything this world has given you, you have lost nothing. That's what verse 10 and 11 are telling us. Because one day, God will restore you. One day, God will make you strong. God will keep you firm and steadfast. And for that, God is to be praised. That's how the passage ends. Well, there's final greetings. I'm not going to cover those. There's stuff that's worthwhile looking at, but we don't have time. Uh, We've skimmed over stuff. I'm going to stop here and just leave the ball in your court to do some thinking and questioning and asking. Um, I'm going to remind you that next year our Bible studies will start up and we'll be starting up looking at 1 Peter and Bible studies give you far more opportunity just to engage and talk about a passage than just a monologue to, uh, sermon does. But if you do have the questions, make sure you're in the habit of asking them because we don't want to merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. We want to be people who wrestle with it, not just to confirm what we've already said, but to be transformed by it. Maybe you could discuss this passage more over morning tea. How about I pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you, Lord God, for the uh, not-so-gentle reminder, but very appropriate reminder of the dangers of pastoring your people. Uh, we thank you, Lord God, for the uh, very pertinent reminder of the struggles that young blokes can have. And we thank you, for Lord God, for the reminder that all of us have, the struggles that all of us have. Uh, Lord, help us to be a church that loves one another humbly. Lord, help us to be people who cast our anxieties on you, who don't live for tomorrow, but live for eternity. Uh, We pray, Lord God, that whether we're in persecution or not in the immediate persecution, we might actually take godly living seriously. So in the face of real persecution, we will stand firm, that we won't be lured away by the deceitful schemes of the devil. Uh, Lord, we pray that our Christianity will be serious and real and not cultural and superficial. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.